Uh, let's ask God to help us understand his word. Our gracious uh, Heavenly Father, uh, we thank you uh, for the gospel we've just heard in the children's talk and in the song, uh, that there is a way to you uh, through trusting the Lord Jesus Christ, that there is forgiveness of our sin. We pray now in your mercy uh, that you would help us grow in our understanding uh, both of sin and of salvation through faith in Jesus, that we would uh, give you the honour which is your due by putting all our trust in your Saviour. Help me to speak your word truthfully and clearly now and help us to concentrate and to understand, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, talk of judgment uh, raises questions. The Lord's saying of Jerusalem and its inhabitants in Ezekiel 5, I am against you and I will execute judgments in your midst in the sight of the nations. Oh, surely because you have defiled my sanctuary with all your detestable things and with all your abominations, therefore I will withdraw my I will not spare. The Lord declaring his intention to judge would have raised questions for the exiles sitting listening to Ezekiel beside the Chiba Canal in Mesopotamia. Why, they think, how, how have they defiled the sanctuary? Could it be that bad? How could God act against his own city, the city he's meant to protect? Oh, the idea is unthinkable. And talk of judgment raises questions for us. Where our society does not even take the life of mass murderers, how could anything be serious enough to deserve destruction? And when God speaks of judging the whole city, the whole population, does that mean the good and the bad will be swept away indiscriminately? Uh, how can we know judgment is not just talk? How can we know it will really happen? And if it's certain, is there hope for anyone? In Ezekiel 8 to 11, the Lord will answer the questions of the first hearers and our questions, not to satisfy our curiosity, but so that we will find hope in the face of certain judgment. Uh, we'll look at chapters 8 to 11 together, for they are the record of the one vision given to Ezekiel about 14 months after his first vision and just a few weeks after the prophecy of Ezekiel 5. It starts in Ezekiel 8, 1-3, uh, with Ezekiel while sitting amongst the elders of Judah in his house, being transported by the Spirit in a vision uh, to Jerusalem. Verse 3, he put out the form of a hand and took me by a lock of my head, and the Spirit lifted me up between earth and heaven and brought me in visions of God to Jerusalem, to the entrance of the gateway of the inner court that faces north. Uh, the vision ends uh, with Uh, the vision ends uh, with Ezekiel being returned by the Spirit to those same exiles in Babylonia. The Spirit lifted me up and brought me in the vision by the Spirit of God into Chaldea, to the exiles. Then the vision that I'd seen went up from me. Now this is a big vision and we'll be taking the panoramic view, the big picture of it, so there will be a lot of details not gone into, so feel free to ask questions afterwards. But let's start where Ezekiel starts his tour of Jerusalem in the temple, the entrance of the north gate of the inner court of the temple. Let's remind ourselves first what the temple was. 
It had been built by Solomon about 390 years before in conformity with the plan of the tabernacle given by God to Moses. It had a central building, the sanctuary that was aligned west to east with the entrance on the east and surrounded by an inner and outer courtyard which were entered uh, by gates on the north, east and south sides. And this sanctuary contained an inner room, the Holy of Holies, where the Ark of the Covenant was placed and over which Solomon had put two large carved cherubim, kind of angelic figures. The temple was where the Lord was symbolically present amongst his people. It was at the heart of their worship of him as Israel's God. It was called the house of the Lord, his palace, with the Holy of Holies in the temple, his throne room. And so it was uniquely his, uniquely identified with him. Now the Lord is very insistent that Ezekiel sees what's going on in the temple. You heard that in chapter 8, verse 6. Son of man, do you see what they're doing? Verse 9, go in and see. Verse 12, verse 15, verse 17, have you seen? And the Lord presents his evidence supporting his judgment to Ezekiel and an increasing scale of offence. Verse 6, 13, 15, you will, still, you will see still greater abominations. Things get worse and worse as the temple tour goes on, as Ezekiel moves closer and closer to the sanctuary. And as we see what Ezekiel sees, we realise, and Ezekiel's first hearers realise, Things are that bad. The Lord is not exaggerating Jerusalem's sin. So what did Ezekiel see? Four kinds of idolatry and some more. As Ezekiel enters the temple from the north, he sees the image or idol of jealousy. We're not told exactly what the idol is, but most think it's a statue of Asherah, the mother of Baal, thought of as the queen of heaven. Then in verses 8 to 9, he's shown a room with many images and idols whom the lay leaders, the elders of the house of Israel, are worshipping. The description of these as creeping things and loathsome beasts, verse 10, means that these men were probably worshipping the gods of Egypt, who more than all the surrounding nations portrayed gods as animals and with whom some of the people of Jerusalem were seeking to make an alliance against the Babylonians. Uh, we hear, verse 12, their reasoning for this worship. They say, the Lord does not see us. The Lord has forsaken the land. This saying both justifies worshipping idols in the Lord's temple and explains why they feel safe to do it. You see, they claim that they have to get the help of other gods because the Lord's left. He's unavailable to help. They are comparing the Lord to their own idols. And they say he is in a kind of impotent retirement. For them, like the nations around them, God and land were tied together. A god was a god of a certain territory, but in recent history, the gods of the Babylonians have been more powerful in the territory of Israel. And so the Lord's left, given up his land, retired somewhere, as it were, to lick his wounds. And being absent, he's also indifferent and uninvolved. He does not see so they have to seek aid, help against the Babylonians elsewhere from the gods of Egypt. But there's more. Uh, there are women weeping for Tammuz in the temple of the living God in whose law death makes unclean. 
We have a cult of the dead, the cult of Tammuz. The women are taking up a Babylonian ritual that remembered a long dead and since deified king. And then verse 16. (coughs) Right outside the entrance to the sanctuary, we have people worshipping the sun. Now think of the picture. When they bow down to the sun, what are they showing to the Lord who is resident in the temple? Well, it's their backsides. What do these visionary pictures say of the people's attitude and relationship to the Lord their God? Remember, all these things are happening in the Lord's temple, the house of the Lord. Well, they express contempt. They're thinking of the Lord like one of the gods of the surrounding nations, projecting onto him human needs and wants. He's incomplete in himself. His rule needs supplementing. He needs a consort, a queen of heaven, Asherah. Oh, they're thinking of him as powerless, unseeing, a little territorial deity displaced by more powerful gods, a god to whom it is useless to turn. They're saying there's actually more powerful in the underworld. And the Lord can be openly defied even in his own house. He's the God you can turn your back on. The God whose word can be despised and openly rejected because the Lord had said before the people had even entered the land. We read this in Deuteronomy 4 where God says to the Israelites, watch yourselves very carefully since you saw no form on the day that the Lord spoke to you at Horeb out of the midst of the fire. Beware lest you act corruptly by making a carved image for yourself. Verse 10, in the likeness of anything that creeps on the ground, the likeness of any fish that's, sorry, verse 18, in the the water under the earth, and beware lest you raise your eyes to heaven. And when you see the sun and the moon, the stars, all the host of heaven, you be drawn away and bowed down to them and serve them. The Lord had warned that such unfaithfulness would cause them, again Deuteronomy 4, to utterly perish from the land, to be completely destroyed. This is a people who have abandoned the covenant, their relationship with the Lord, not in secret but openly. In the house, in the Lord's house, they had an object he had forbidden, were practising an activity that repulsed him, had more respect for the dead and were openly turning their backs on him. This is not occasional disobedience, but a settled and justified, a determined turning to other gods. Now, perhaps like many in our society, you don't care much about what you or others think about God. But to get a feel for the level of contempt and how it makes it impossible for the Lord and this rebellious people to keep living together, sharing the same space, to get a feel for why the Lord says their behaviour will drive me far from my sanctuary, think about your own home, your own house. Let's say you kindly let some neighbours whose house had burnt down come and stay with you. And you said, look, to help us live together, just a few simple rules. Please don't park your car on the lawn. I've been working on it for months and and there's plenty of space in the driveway and definitely, you know, no smoking in the house. Pretty simple. But after a week or two, you noticed that they were parking their cars on the lawn because they said it made it easier for them to get out. 
And then you notice the smell of smoke from their bedrooms and despite you raising it with them, they kept on doing it. And then they started smoking openly in the kitchen and the dining room and, well, you couldn't work out during this time why the mail wasn't arriving and you were getting phone calls from people whose bills hadn't been paid until you saw your guests writing not at this address or mail address to you. And then finally when you went to raise this with them to tell them it couldn't go on, they just turned their backs on you and kept on with what they were doing. An object you'd forbidden on the front lawn, an activity that repulsed you and them treating you as if you weren't there, as if you were as good as dead. Now you would think one of us has got to go. We can't keep sharing this space. In fact, you'd be determined not to have anything to do with them ever again because their behaviour, their abusing your generosity offended you so deeply. Yet this is the way many of us treat God. We live in his world. We breathe the air he gives us. We have all his good gifts and we treat him as if he's not there as if he's dead, unable to speak a word to us and think it doesn't really matter that he's so impotent, he can be openly despised. You know, that's sometimes the way believers treat God. When we say, for example, we can serve money, rely on it for our security as well as serve God, or when, we can say, or when we say that we can mix the worship of the Lord, whether in private or public, with the worship of other gods, say sharing in multi-faith services. But there is more. Verse 17, the Lord says, Have you seen this, O son of man? Is it too light a thing for the house of Judah to commit the abominations that they commit here, that they should fill the land with violence and provoke provoke me still further to anger. Behold, they put the branch to their nose. This is actually the climax of Jerusalem's sin. They fill the land with violence. The Lord repeats this charge in chapters 9 and 11 and this violence provokes him. It puts the branch to the nose, an insulting and provocative gesture like a two-fingered salute. Violence was the sin of the flood generation that provoked that judgment. It's the more powerful oppressing the less powerful in whatever context, using whatever means they have to get their own way and enrich themselves, whether that's by intimidation, abuse of the court process, beatings that silence or even killing. They crush resistance to their will. Violence, you see, is saying, The proud, not the Lord, rules in the world. It's saying the Lord does not see, he will not act, he will not defend the powerless and poor, he will not uphold his justice, and so the proud can act according to their own wishes and interests. Where the Lord is rejected, where he is despised, his image, those made in his image, you and I, human life, will be despised. You see, there is always a cost to idolatry and that cost is paid by the poor, the weak, the vulnerable who are no longer protected by the fear of the Lord. And we see that in our own times, in our own society, where the lives of the unborn are no longer protected and where those eager for gain exploit those desperate for work. 
And just like you would be incensed if, you know, in our story, those people in your house had started mistreating your children, the Lord is provoked by this violent mistreatment of those made in his image. The Lord says, verse 18, Therefore I will act in my wrath. My eye will not spare, nor will I have pity, and though they cry in my ears, I will not hear them. You see, the Lord had always been clear with his people. Behave like the Canaanites with their idolatry and their wickedness and be treated like the Canaanites. Deuteronomy 8, if you forget the Lord your God and go after other gods and serve them and worship them, I solemnly warn you today that you shall perish. Like the nations that the Lord makes to perish before you, so shall you perish. You see, idolaters can have no place in the Lord's land, in the Lord's presence. It is that bad. The breaking relationship is final. All Jerusalem will be caught up in the coming judgment. And actually, the Lord's clear with us too. Idolatry, giving our thanks, worships and lo- worship and loyalty to created things. A proud rejection of his truth and word. The hypocrisy that claims relationship with God but does not do his will, thinking we can mix the worship of the Lord with the worship of other gods. Idolatry provokes his wrath and all the world will be caught up in that judgment. But is that judgment is indiscriminate? Does it treat the righteous and the unrighteous alike? This has been a question from the time of Abraham. But in the face of awesome judgment, judgments that carry away so many, we need reassurance. Ezekiel 9. Then the Lord cried in my ears with a loud voice saying, Bring near the executioners of the city, each with his destroying weapon in his hand. And behold, six men came from the direction of the upper gate, which faces north, each with his weapon for slaughter in his hand. And with them was a man clothed in linen with a writing case at his waist. And they went in and stood beside the bronze altar. Now the glory of the God of Israel had gone up from the cherub on which it rested to the threshold of the house. And he called to the man clothed in linen who had been writing, who had the writing case at his waist. And the Lord said to him, pass through the city, through Jerusalem, and put a mark on the foreheads of the men who sigh and groan over all the abominations that are committed in, in it. And to the others, he said, in my hearing, Pass through the city after him and strike. Your eye shall not spare and you shall show no pity. Kill old men outright, young men and maidens, little children and women, but touch no one on whom is the mark and begin at my sanctuary. Ezekiel's vision continues and he sees six men, the executioners of the city, who are told to pass through the city and strike the whole population without regard to age or gender. But he also sees another man with a writing case who's commanded to put a mark on the foreheads of the men who sigh and groan over all the abominations that are committed in it. These are people whom the executioners, verse 6, are forbidden to touch. They will be spared. This vision interprets the event that will soon overtake Jerusalem, its siege and capture by the Babylonians. Then the sword will be in the hands of the Babylonians But we are taught here that it will be the Lord's sentence that they will execute. And even in these overwhelming and violent events, the Lord can spare those he wills. But who are they who will be spared? Those who sigh 
and groan over all the abominations that are committed. They are grieved by the sin of Jerusalem. This is a real and intense grief, the kind of grief we're told later Ezekiel will experience at the death of his wife, grief for the unfaithfulness and ingratitude of the Lord's people, for the rejection and dishonouring of the Lord by misrepresenting him as a dumb idol and treating him with contempt. You see, these who grieve are informed by the Lord's truth, believe his word, and so out of step with all the other inhabitants of Jerusalem, they see what is happening from the Lord's point of view. In the light of his covenant with Israel, those who mourn are people who see life and security in turning in repentance and faith to the Lord, not turning from the Lord. I suspect that, like Jeremiah, they would not have been popular in their society for they would have seen this judgment as deserved and they would have seen hope in turning back to the one their neighbours thought so passe, so yesterday's God, so infuriating in demanding their exclusive loyalty. They would have been unpopular but spared. You know, grief is not popular in our society, especially grief about sin and even more so grief at the dishonouring of the true and living God. See, we're meant to be grateful for our religious pluralism, grateful for our secular banishing of the Lord from public life. In Australia, we are not meant to take God and his claims seriously, even as Christians. But the Lord Jesus says, blessed are those who mourn for sin. He says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. And at the heart of righteousness is honouring God. Do you know that blessing and the discomfort of that blessing? Well, despite the evidence of sin, of a clear repudiation of the covenant with the Lord, Ezekiel's audience still had trouble believing the destruction of Jerusalem could, would actually happen. I mean, they thought, wouldn't this be God acting against himself, inflicting defeat on himself by destroying his city? Doesn't he have to defend it for his own reputation? We have the same problem with judgment, don't we? Doesn't God have to save everyone to be God? So God gives visionary testimony to underline the certainty of the judgment they could not bring themselves to believe in. He brings that certainty home in multiple ways. Firstly, in responding To Ezekiel's agonised question, the Lord says the character of Israel's sin means judgment will be certain. Oh, Lord God, will you destroy all the remnant of Israel in the outpouring of your wrath on Jerusalem? The Lord says the guilt of the house of Israel and Judah is exceedingly great. The land is full of blood and the city full of injustice for they say the Lord has forsaken the land and the Lord does not see. As for me, my eye will not spare nor will I have pity. I will bring their deeds upon their heads. Judgment is certain because God will give our actions what they deserve. And secondly, giving them what they want, what the Israelites want means judgment will be certain. You see, they wanted God out of the way. They wanted to drive God away from his sanctuary. They wanted to believe that the Lord had forsaken the land so they were free to do whatever they liked. 
And through chapters 8 to 11, we see the Lord leaving Jerusalem. At the start, the glory of the Lord is seen in the vision where it traditionally was understood to reside in the Holy of Holies above the cherub over the Ark of the Covenant. But that glory moves, 9.3. It goes up from the cherub on which it had rested to the threshold of the house. (coughs) First it moves from the Holy of Holies to the threshold of the sanctuary, looking out, as it were, on all the idolatrous activity in the temple courts. But then the glory of the Lord mounts its throne chariot, uh, which is again spoken of in chapter 10, and moves to the east gate of the house of the Lord, poised for departure. They stand at the entrance of the east gate. And then finally, we have the Lord's departure from the city. Oh, not from the land. That's recorded at the end of the vision in Ezekiel 11. Then the cherubim lifted up their wings with the wheels beside them and the glory of the God of Israel was over them and the glory of the Lord went up from the midst of the city and stood on the mountain that's on the east side of the city. You see, the Lord won't stay and be treated as anyone's dumb idol, anyone's tame God. The Lord's not forced out by some other God. He goes as king riding his heavenly chariot. He goes in his own time in accordance with his own will, fulfilling his own covenant word. But in going, he gives the the Jerusalemites up to their folly. Jerusalem is now left without his protection. They did not want to honour him as their God and he leaves them to their choice. Oh, he still reigns. He still owns the real estate. The earth is the Lord's. Life depends on him. But now he is outside. He is not for them, with them, but against them and separate from him and they cannot bring him back. His departure, God giving them up to their idols, is judgment that tells us that their final judgment is sure, that the doom of the city is sealed. God giving humanity up to our foolish rejection of our creators, we see in Romans 1, and as we see in our society, tells us the doom of a rebellious world is settled. And then finally in 11, 1 to 13, Ezekiel sees another vision. Uh, That vision reveals the sinfulness of those now in power in Jerusalem and at the end of it there is an event that unsettles Ezekiel further. And it came to pass while I was prophesying that Pelatiah, the son of Benai, one of the people he's seen in there in power, died. Then I fell down on my face and cried out with a loud voice and said, Ah, Lord God, will you make a full end of the remnant of Israel? Ezekiel's cry tells us he gets the point. Pelatiah's death is a down payment on the judgment pronounced. That judgment, you see, the death tells us is already in train and there will be no escape. And even though this death will support the truthfulness of Ezekiel's prophesying underlined to the exiles, the certainty of the Lord carrying out what he's revealing through his prophet Ezekiel wonders again if this is the end of Israel in its entirety. 
Will you make a full end of the remnant of Israel? Now, that's a question uh, that would be on the lips of his hearers as well. For in their view, hope for the continuation of Israel lay only with those who'd been left in the land of Israel. See, people, land and God were inseparable. To be away from the land was to be away from the Lord and beyond his care, son of man. This, your brothers, even your brothers, your kinsmen, the whole house of Israel, all of them, are those of whom the inhabitants of Jerusalem have said, go far from the Lord. To us this land is given for a possession. In the accepted theology of the day, the Lord had already finished with those in exile. Tossed out of his land, they'd been tossed out of any place in his plans for his people. There was no hope of Israel in the exiles, they believed. But unlike the time uh, Ezekiel first asked that question about whether Israel had any future, this time the Lord actually gives Ezekiel a fuller and surprising answer, an answer that says there is still hope for Israel Hope in the face of certain judgment, hope in an unexpected place. (coughs) Thus says the Lord God, though I removed them far off among the nations and though I scattered them among the countries, yet I have been a sanctuary to them for a while in the countries where they've gone. First of all, the Lord says he's sovereign over what's happened to the exiles. It didn't happen because he was defeated. They were not being taken beyond his power. It was his will being done. I removed, I scattered, and he has not abandoned the exiles. He's the God of the whole earth, and they can draw near to him and enjoy his protection wherever they are, for he has been a sanctuary to them for a while, for the limited time of their exile, and he has great plans for them. I will gather you from the peoples and assemble you out of the countries where you have been scattered and I will give you the land of Israel and when they come there they will remove from it all its detestable things and all its abominations. As the Lord sent them into exile so he will gather them from exile and he will give them the land. More, he will make it possible for them to live in the land in his presence forever. I will give them one heart, that is, now undivided loyalty and a new spirit I will put within them. I will remove the heart of stone from their flesh and give them a heart of flesh that they may walk in my statutes and keep my rules and obey them and they shall be my people and I will be their God. Now we will hear more of this new will and mind that will want to do the Lord's will in Ezekiel 36. But when the Lord says that They shall be my people and I will be their God. He is saying that in this despised and rejected remnant, a people that they all thought had been abandoned and forsaken by the Lord, well, it's in this people that the Lord would fulfil his great covenant purpose to have a people of his very own. That's the promise he made to Abraham way back in Genesis 17. It's the promise he repeated when he made the covenant with Israel through Moses. And the Lord says that he will fulfil that promise, achieve that purpose through judgment and through the despised and rejected exiles. Hope for Israel in judgment is found in an unexpected place. And that's true for us. People under judgment for idolatry, for the proud violence that comes where the Lord is not honoured. 
See, everyone believed that Jesus on the cross was under God's judgment, had been abandoned by him, was experiencing his curse and not his blessing. And surely the cross is the last place you would look for hope, the death of a God-forsaken man, a man who could cry with his last breath, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But the Lord overturns the verdicts of complacent sinners, confident of their own righteousness, of their own entitlement to blessing. It's in the death of Jesus that sinners under judgment can find hope. As Paul writes in Galatians 3, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree, so that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. Christ became a curse for us so that through trusting him we could enjoy the blessing of Abraham. That is, like Abraham, we could be justified, made right with righteous God by faith and faith alone, come to be included in God's people by trusting the Lord Jesus. And Christ became a curse so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. That is, that we might have the new heart and the new spirit Ezekiel promised, that new life that can live in God's presence. Hope is in the God-forsaken, judged in our place. Well, Ezekiel comes back to earth amongst the elders of Judah gathered at his house and he tells them all the things that the Lord had shown me. He told them everything, told them of the Lord's view of idolatrous practices that they and or members of their family shared in, told them the certainty of the judgment on Jerusalem, the certainty of judgment for those who abandoned the covenant, told them who would be spared and told them where the Lord offered hope to Israel amongst exiles whose hearts he would change. There in Ezekiel's house, far away from Jerusalem, those elders had a choice to believe Ezekiel or not, to hold fast to their old world view that the Lord was just like all the other gods, their national local deity had been out-muscled by the gods of Babylon and that they had now moved beyond his power and help and so now had to look to themselves to turn to other gods, the gods of their new environment. They could hold fast to that or they could humble themselves to believe a word from God that told them that the judgment coming was thoroughly deserved and that called them to confess their sin and mourn for these abominations in their national life and in their own lives. Hold fast to the word that called them, even in faraway Babylon, to know that the Lord is God, the living God, whose word is always fulfilled, the ruler of the whole world who should always be trusted and obeyed, the God he had said he would be in all his dealings with them. Called them, even in faraway Babylon, to know he's the Lord and to put all their hope in him, to abandon the false hope they clung to of getting back to Jerusalem, to abandon that for the bigger hope, the hope beyond hope he offered, that they would, beyond Jerusalem's destruction, beyond the temple's destruction, be gathered back to Judah as his purified and changed people. They had a choice, and as we hear Ezekiel, we also have a choice. 
God has told us of the judgment deserved for idolatry and the violence, the sin that flows from it. He has told us it is certain for idolaters cannot continue in his presence and he has told us that he is free and will bring hope for us from where we would never look for hope, hope from the despised and rejected one. Oh, and he has told us, those who are spared are those who mourn, who are grieved for sin and turn to him and not from him. Now, hearing this, we can choose to defend ourselves and our idols, claim that it is right for us to be able to believe whatever we like about God. I'll demand that we are good enough even if we don't honour our creator or believe his word. Now, we can keep doing that and maintain that Jesus is zealous for God's honour as a loser. Or we can change our minds and humble ourselves. Come to see the world as God sees it, the world he has created, sustained and rules his world. And see our sin as God sees it, ungrateful contempt, serious enough to deserve death, the death of eternal separation for the good God. For while we continue in that sin, we cannot share life with him and without him all that is before us is death. We can come to see the world as God sees it, sees our sin as God sees it, and put our hope in the hope God gives us in Christ. Forsaken, cursed, not for his own sin, but ours. And now risen and reigning to be the one who can forgive us and give us new life. A new life to live by giving our loyalty, trust and worship to him alone. That's your choice. How will you choose? Will you choose life in humbling yourself, mourning for sin, or death in holding fast to your proud lies? Let's pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we pray in your mercy that we would see our sin and see it for the horror, the abomination it is, the contempt it shows for you, our good creator, and turn from it. And we pray that we would look for hope to the hope you provide. Uh, We would look for hope uh, where we would never think of finding it, in the one who's rejected and despised, forsaken, the Lord Jesus on the cross, forsaken not for his own sin but for ours. Please turn us to confess that you are the living God and hope is found in you. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.